All right. Good morning, everyone. Welcome back to our class on First Kings. We begin in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. All right, well, we left off in chapter 9. And while there have been some hints in the, in the past few chapters that, that maybe not all is well or is going to go well, Nonetheless, broadly speaking, generally speaking, everything has been going well. The, the temple is established. The kingdom is prospering. Uh, Solomon is wise. And everything, everything in a general sense is going well. So, of course, we have the, the liturgy of the temple dedication that Solomon leads, complete with his prayer and benediction, his sacrifices. And um, now we're in the middle of you know, what, is, what are broadly Solomon's other acts. And so we had been taking a look at this section, chapter 9, verses 10 and following. I think we had um, maybe around verse 15 or something is where we'll pick up today. Does that sound right to everyone? <laughs> General vicinity, yes? Yes? No, I can't. Okay, all right. <laughs> so 15, let's just, let's just pick up there. We're in the middle of Solomon's other acts. So why, why have these been recorded? They're characteristic of his reign. They're characteristic of the, the high point of the kingdom of Israel on earth. Now, already in this section, of course, we do see, you know, it's, it's interesting, possibly some, some cracks in the facade of, of everything being well. I mean, there's this, there's this issue with uh, you know, uh, King Solomon giving to Hiram these 20 cities, and then Hiram isn't all that impressed with the cities. A little ambiguity there, but could could indicate cracks in the uh, in the in the facade here that maybe things weren't uh, done completely on the up and up. Verse fifteen, and this is the account of the forced labor. Uh oh. Okay, so there you know there's another kind of thing where not necessarily, but perhaps this indicates a kind of crack in the facade. And this is the account of the forced labor that King Solomon drafted to build the house of the Lord and his own house. And the millow, the millow is interesting. It's probably a rampart that was used to uh, take over Jerusalem that then is later built into a stone step structure. But uh, there is some debate about that. And there is some uncertainty as far as I could tell in my brief research about what the millow is. But anyway... King Solomon had drafted forced labor to build the house of the Lord, his own house, and the millow, and the wall of Jerusalem, and Hazor, and Megiddo, and Gezer. Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, had gone up and captured Gezer and burnt it with fire, and had killed the Canaanites who lived in the city, and had given it as dowry to his daughter Solomon's wife. This is a violent age, to be sure. Need a dowry for my, my daughters uh, so she can get married. 
So I'm going to procure that by slaughtering a bunch of people. Verse 17, so Solomon rebuilt Gezer and lower Beth Horon and Baleth and Tamar in the wilderness in the land of Judah and all the store cities that Solomon had and the cities for his chariots and the cities for his horsemen and whatever Solomon desired to build in Jerusalem, in Lebanon and in all the land of his dominion. All the people who were left of the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, who were not of the people of Israel, their descendants who were left after them in the land, whom the people of Israel were unable to devote to destruction. Of course, you remember that largely being a theme in Joshua, but then also in the Judges. These Solomon drafted to be slaves, and so they are to this day. So... You know, again, I can't help but reflect on the possibility that this too is pointing to a deeper sort of fault in the foundation or crack in the facade, however you want to visualize it. But this idea that that even though all is well, it's kind of not all well. (laughs) Under the surface, there are these, these underlying issues. Verse 22, but of the people of Israel, Solomon made no slaves. They were the soldiers, they were his officials, his commanders, his captains, his chariot commanders, and his horsemen. These were the chief officers who were over Solomon's work, 550 who had charge of the people who carried on the work. But Pharaoh's daughter went up from the city of David to her own house that Solomon had built for her, then he built the millow. And again, we commented on the millow already. So, I mean... Also here, also here, if you're kind of going with the, with the reading, and I'm not saying you necessarily have to, but if you're kind of going with the reading that there are hints and portents that everything is not well, then even just the mention of Pharaoh's daughter here, which otherwise kind of seems odd other than to say that he built her a house, but even that mention harkens back to the warning that they're not to intermarry and that intermarrying with the pagan peoples is going to lead to worship of the pagan gods. So, uh, so on the one hand, you have these great and magnificent accomplishments, this flourishing of the society, this building of all of these things and rebuilding of things. And, um, but underneath it, you have uh, perhaps underhanded business practices, certainly forced labor, an alliance and marriage with a pagan woman, and the door opened to further idolatry. All right, verse 25. Three times a year Solomon used to offer up burnt offerings and peace offerings on the altar that he built to the Lord, making offerings with it before the Lord, so he finished the house. The three times, this is worth glancing down in your study note just to recall that the three times are, of course, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the Feast of Harvest, and the Feast of Ingathering. And you can see these, or or booths, of course. And you can see these. um, Do they give a page? Oh, they don't give a page. Yes, that's because it's over on uh, footnote for chapter 8, verse 65. If you could turn to pages, if you want to know more about these feasts, you can turn to pages 200 and 201 in your Lutheran study Bible and get all the information you want there. Okay, but that's, um, this gives us just 
broadly speaking, he's upholding uh, the liturgical rites of the covenant, acknowledging these three major feasts. Verse 26, King Solomon built a fleet of ships at Ezion Geber, which is near Aloth on the shore of the Red Sea in the land of Edom. And Hiram sent with the fleet his servants, seamen who were familiar with the sea, together with the servants of Solomon. And they went to Ophir and brought from there gold. The gold of Ophir becomes uh, like the cedars of Lebanon, becomes this kind of famous phrase, term. 420 talents, and they brought it to King Solomon. So Solomon is getting enriched here. We can see um, negative contrast, obviously, with the kingdom of our, of our Lord, not being a kingdom of this world. And, um, and in a very different way, all the nations of the earth bring their wealth and glory into the kingdom of God, into the church of God. And ultimately, that finds its fulfillment in the new heavens and the new earth, as Revelation tells us. So by, by way of type or foreshadowing, both in a positive and in a negative sense, you can see all the, na all the wealth of the world, all the wealth of the nations and the glory of the nations coming in under Solomon, um, the original king and son of David. Of course, that only uh, foreshadows and points to the true king and son of David, our, our Lord Jesus. Okay, so that takes us through uh, chapter 9. And again, this latter half, really uh, verses 10 up to the, to the present verse, giving us a sense for what this kingdom was like and um, a sense for Solomon's great accomplishments with some chinks in the armor. Yes? Ooh, I don't know where Ophir is off the top of my head. Um, is there anything in the study note? Source of gold and other valuables. See note on Job twenty-two twenty-four. Hmm. No, I don't. I'm sorry off the top of my head. I didn't look that up. I don't know. Yeah. 420 talents, it says in the same note that unfortunately doesn't tell us exactly where Ophir is. 420 talents is 16 tons. 32,000 pounds of gold. That's a lot of gold. Yeah, that'll do. Do. All right, um, chapter 10, verse 1. If anybody, by the way, if anybody Googles, where, you know, Ophir or, uh, or finds, or yeah, DuckDuckGoes, <laughs> I haven't got used to that yet. DuckDuckGoes, Ophir, or finds it in one of their, uh, one of their Bible maps, I would, I would love to know, and I can relate that to the class, and those of us joining, the, you know, those joining us online. Uh, so just wave a hand in the air if you get that info. Chapter 10, verse 1. Now, when the queen of Sheba, who do you think you are, the queen of Sheba? She actually is. When the queen of Sheba heard of the fame of Solomon concerning the name of the Lord, it's very interesting language, she came to test him with hard questions. So, the, largely the fame of Solomon is his, is his wisdom, of course, and his wisdom that then has brought about all this affluency. And so she comes to test him with hard questions. She came to Jerusalem with a very great retinue, with camels bearing spices 
and very much gold and precious stones. And when she came to Solomon, she told him all that was on her mind. And Solomon answered all her questions. There was nothing hidden from the king that he could not explain to her. So part of these hard questions are riddles and this kind of thing, you know, obviously, and um, probably questions about the naturalistic world and that, that sort of thing as well. But he could explain everything to her that she asked. Verse 4, And when the queen of Sheba had seen all the wisdom of Solomon, the house that he had built, you know, this is a sad fact of, of our very practical American landscape is our buildings aren't very expressive of wisdom. <laughs> They're basically, most of them are warehouses or uh, just square blocks. Not very expressive of wisdom. But here, interesting that you can connect these things. The Queen of Sheba had seen all the wisdom of Solomon, the house that he had built. That's the wisdom of, of Solomon embodied. The food of his table. Interesting. Wisdom expressed in the food of his table. The seating of his officials and the attendance of his servants. Their clothing, his cupbearers, and his burnt offerings that he offered in the house of the Lord. There was no more breath in her. She was breathless. Yeah. So quite impressive. Quite impressive. Yes. India. Yeah. You learn something new every day. Plus, the Internet's never wrong, so we can... Uh, <laughs> yeah. Well, let's go with Ophir uh, being in India, unless we learn different. They have that, and then they say Sofala, a seaport near Mozambique on the east coast of Africa, has been advanced as the site of Ophir. Mm, so on the east of Africa. Boy, that would seem to make more sense to me yeah, geographically, yeah. especially in connection with the ships. Yeah, the ships are going across the Mediterranean over to the east of Africa, picking up right. the gold and coming back. That seems to make more sense to me than, than India. Yeah, they'd have to take boats to India, which this is when my uh, American education really exhibits all its glory. And I've got um, no geogra virtually no geographical understanding other than that. That doesn't seem... Doesn't seem likely to me. Where's. I sure thought the study Bible. Have I found a, a weakness in the study Bible? Where's all the maps? They're just in the front? Those ones, they were. They, were, they finally had a good thickness of paper but, and color, but there was, uh, there was just the Holy Land. So what I'm, what I'm trying to do. Yeah, what I'm, well, what I'm trying to do is just find. In the book of Acts, you're going to have Paul doing his missionary journeys. You're going to have some maps there. But it seems to me, you'll have to pardon us online for this digression. But, yeah, it seems to me, well, that one on page 1886 isn't, isn't all that great. Uh, and it doesn't have any... I mean, obviously, we're a thousand years later in Acts, but I was hoping for a map that would show us precisely what's east. 
and if there's any sense of Solomon's kingdom going that far. It would almost have to be Africa. Let's just leave it there because I don't want to bore the poor people online to tears. But yeah, if, so if somebody finds out otherwise, let me know. It's up for debate, but we think it's in, we think it's in Africa. That'll have to suffice for now. Okay. So, yeah, so we've got this. We've got the Queen of Sheba duly impressed. Queen of Sheba? Yeah, they don't. Yeah, they don't, like, say if her name was Karen or Sherry or <laughs> whoever it might be. Yeah, we don't know. It's just the Queen of just the Queen of Sheba. Okay, well, this is kind of cool. This is kind of cool, I think. Because again, as we're viewing, as we're viewing Solomon as a type of Christ, we saw how David used his house. Remember how he invited, um, what was it, the son of Jonathan, the surviving son of Jonathan to sit at his table? And we, we kind of went through that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You said it, not me. Meshibosheth? No, Meshibosheth. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, whatever his name is. We all know his name. Yeah. Anyway, um, yeah, yeah. So, so we've, already been, we've already kind of in the biblical narrative been cued into this idea of the king's table and the king's fellowship. And we, we talked about how with David that points to the mercy that Jesus, our king, has in inviting us to his table. Here we glimpse it again. Here we glimpse it again. You've got, you've got reference to the, to the temple. No, maybe this is more to his house than the temple. Now that I look at it again, I had assumed it was the temple, the house that he had built, but maybe that's his own house. Probably is his own house, because the rest is describing what's in his house. The food of his table, the seating of his officials, the attendance of his servants and clothing and cupbearers, burnt offerings that he offered in the house of the Lord. It just reminds us that we and the courts of our King, Jesus, we've been invited into this fellowship. And the high and holy honor it is to go to Holy Communion and uh, be welcomed as he visits us locally in our own context. And uh, we are seated with him. It's, it's an incredible honor. If we, if we really believed this, we'd, we'd, have a hard time, we'd have a hard time even functioning. At, uh, at divine service because I mean I know people get all excited if there's a star athlete or celebrity or something this is or, or you know great world leader but this is this is the king of kings and he invites us to his table every Sunday to have fellowship with him yeah and tying that in to be his ambassadors, that was, that's the apostolic office specifically, but in, a, in an extended sense, all Christians are. But that also means to, to be engaged with him in government already and to speak our peace to him and express our needs to him and the needs of other people to him by way of prayer. It's really remarkable. We find ourselves as those officials and servants gathered around his table, indeed as those seated, seated at the table with him in another sense. All right, I don't want to belabor the point. Verse 6, And she said to the king, The report was true that I heard in my own land of your words and of your wisdom. 
but I did not believe the reports until I came and my own eyes had seen it. And behold, the half was not told me. Your wisdom and prosperity surpass the report that I heard. Happy are your men, happy are your servants who continually stand before you and hear your wisdom. Again, typologically, what a great expression of divine service in our Lord Jesus. I, I, you know, he, he mentions that a greater than Solomon is here and connects this, this event with the visiting of, of the Queen of Sheba, who's a Gentile, and the visitation of her and immediately recognizing the wisdom of Solomon. And, and our Lord connects this, and I'm certainly paraphrasing, maybe even adding a little, but the Gentiles come to him and find a greater and a wiser than Solomon. And what a beautiful description of divine service. You know, when we're hearing our Lord's words spoken from the pulpit, happy are your men, happy are your servants who continually stand before you and hear your wisdom. If we had the kind of sanctuary where you engrave things, we should engrave that on the, on the doors going into the narthex. Blessed be the Lord your God. So this is coming from uh, pagan lips. Blessed be the Lord your God who has delighted in you and set you on the throne of Israel. I mean, this is exactly, this is iconic of the Gentile church with our Lord Jesus. Because the Lord loved Israel forever, he has made you king that you may execute justice and righteousness. Then she gave the king 120 talents of gold and a very great quantity of spices and precious stones. Never again came such an abundance of spices as these that the Queen of Sheba gave to King Solomon. Ah, just, just beautiful. And you can, you can relate to, in a, in a very loose typologically way, of the, gen, uh, of the Gentiles coming and glorifying God on account of the Son of David on account of the true king of Israel, our Lord Jesus. And they bring gold and frankincense and myrrh, just as the queen of Sheba. And albeit in a different vein, you can reflect too on the, the extraordinary amount of spices that are provided for the burial of Jesus. Yeah, yeah. Okay, verse 11. Moreover, the fleet of Hiram, which brought gold from Ophir, brought from Ophir a very great amount of amal, uh, wait, no, almug wood and precious stones. Now, I, I know that the study was going to tell us that not only does it not know where Ophir is, but it doesn't know what almug is. It's an unidentified tree. Hebrew name is not translated, but merely transliterated. Some think it was reddish and fragrant sandalwood. In 2 Chronicles 2, 8, and 9, 10, the variant form algum occurs, suggesting that it was not a Hebrew term, but a foreign one. 
All right, so we don't know what it is, but it was, it was valuable, it was precious. So, um, Almug wood and precious stones. And the king made of the Almug wood supports for the house of the Lord and for the king's house. Also, lyres and harps for the singers. No such Almug wood has come or been seen to this day. Yeah. So, I mean, really, really kind of great and mysterious. This mystery wood that was so precious. And who knows? I mean, who knows whether it's even around anymore? It may well have uh, gone extinct. Verse 13, And King Solomon gave to the queen of Sheba all that she desired, whatever she asked, or asked excuse me, besides what was given her by the bounty of King Solomon. So she turned and went back to her own land with her servants. Yeah, there's this great exchange of gifts. Oh, um, just in summary, the study note says the Queen of Sheba's legendary visit to Jerusalem shows the widespread fame of Solomon's wisdom. Not only does God bless Solomon with great wisdom, but he also blesses him with a great reputation. May we humbly recognize that the blessings we enjoy, including earthly prosperity and a good name, come to us by God's undeserved grace in his son Jesus. Yeah, a great statement there. Okay, well, that ends the account of the Queen of Sheba. Now on to Solomon's great wealth. And if we're reading this text and all of these statements of wealth with New Testament eyes, and perhaps in specific with our Lord's warning that you cannot serve God and mammon, we know what the temptation is, and we know uh, what's at stake here. So, with that kind of in the back of our minds, we can read on. Verse 14, Now the weight of gold that came to Solomon in one year was 666 talents of gold. It's an ominous number, but, <laughs> but I don't know if there's actually any connection there. I really don't. When you look up 666, as we all do, to try to figure out what on earth it means. Um, and again, in, a, in terms and context of our Revelation class and our study in Brighton's commentary and, and the commentaries of others, this is a rather wide-held belief, 666 is the kind of imperfect trinity. It's the antithesis of 777, the threefold presence, name, number of God given to us in baptism. And so to receive the mark of the beast, 666, is to um, be obedient to him rather than to God. Okay, well, be that as it may, when you try to research biblically that number 666, here's one of the references that comes up. It's, I mean, it's hard to say if it's here or there. You could try to make some connection between mammon and that, I suppose, but it's, uh, it's a little dubious, a little tenuous. Sometimes a number is just a number, you know. <laughs> so 666 talents of gold. Anyway, in one year, now, I am not going to do my, I'm not going to bore you here and get out my calculator and do all the conversions and all of that, but um, 
He already had 32,000 pounds of gold come from Ophir. And now he's got, uh, and that was, that was less talents, I know, than 666. So his wealth increases. Besides that which came from the explorers, and from the business of the merchants, and from all the kings of the West, and from the governors in the land. I mean, so that's a, that's a minimal figure. King Solomon made 200 large shields of beaten gold. 600 shekels of gold went into each shield. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah there it is. 666 talents is 25 tons, 50,000 pounds, not including all the other stuff. And then these shields, yeah, the study note says that these, these were ceremonial, carried by a royal honor guard on ceremonial occasions. Six pounds of gold went into the larger kind, two pounds into the smaller ones. And he made 300 shields of, of beaten gold. So 200 large shields, 300 shields of beaten gold. Three minas of gold went into each shield. I think that that's like the two pounds. And the king put them in the house of the forest of Lebanon. Remember, that's his house. Now, it's more than that. It's probably equivalent to the White House or something. I mean, obviously, he lives there, but it's probably also where the business is conducted. You know, maybe even more than a connection with the White House. Just seems to be a governmental house also. But remember, it's so huge and uses so much of this uh, cedar wood that it's, <laughs> it's called the house of the forest of Lebanon. It's a, it's a forest sitting there in building form. So just a further reminder of the opulence and wealth of Solomon and his kingdom. Um, then that continues, verse 18. The king also made a great ivory throne and overlaid it with finest gold. We hear about this um, throughout the division of the two kingdoms. The ivory is just this... Um, you know, maybe even, maybe even more valuable than gold in some instances. Uh, they're not necessarily so. It just depends. But, I mean, this throne is ivory, overlaid with gold. The throne had six steps. And at the back of the throne was a calf's head. And on each side of the seat were armrests and two lions standing beside the armrests while 12 lions stood there, one on each end of a step on the six steps. Oh, so, so by my reckoning, that's, that's eight lions. So you're walking up and the steps, each step has you know, two lions on it. You're, you know, you're walking up and the armrests have lions on it. And then the back is this, is this head of a, of a calf. The like of it was never made in any kingdom. The study notes were a little spartan on this, and I made a note for myself personally to go dig around in some commentaries and see what exactly the, what exactly the thought is here on the symbolism and where it comes from. I mean, you can see in regard to the calf's head, for example. It's really fascinating. Really fascinating. Um, you remember the golden calf? 
That's why it's fascinating to me is I wonder if it indicates, if it's one of those very subtle indicators of like not, not everything well. Yeah, the, the worship of Baal was often in the form of a calf and then that calf got translated as an idol. You can see this um, in the account where they're, where they're worshiping the golden calf while Moses is up receiving the covenant. You know, Aaron has it in mind that they're worshiping Yahweh in the form of the golden calf. So anyway, it's interesting. I'm not saying that that's necessarily what's happening here, but it makes me curious. Oh, yeah, yeah, right. Well, that's that's true because we're going to, yes, yeah, so we're going to find out it just in a few verses, the beginning of the next chapter, um, you know, even... What's that? The oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that's tr that's true. The, yeah, the uh, but that's oxen. You know that. Yeah, on the on the backs of the oxen is the big basin that's part of the temple. Yeah, I don't know. It may be the case that these um, these seven hundred wives and three hundred concubines that we're going to learn of and their pagan influence that may have influenced this a little. I don't know. Who knows? Who knows? Wait, I messed up. I but I messed up. I don't know why I said eight. It's not eight lions. It's twelve lions and two lions. That's fourteen lions. So I'm sorry for that. But yeah, it's, uh, it's 14 lines. Um, yeah, because you've got six steps, two on each step. <clears throat> and then the two lions um, standing beside the armrests, not properly the armrests, but beside the armrests. Okay, and then there's just, there's this note that there's <laughs> never been a throne like this in any kingdom. Maybe President Biden will get one of these. I don't know. <laughs> then again, if Trump didn't, if Trump didn't, I wouldn't expect Biden to. Yeah. Who knows? Who knows? All right. Um, verse 21, all King Solomon's drinking vessels were of gold. It's funny, we needed to purchase a new communion chalice at, uh, at, for faith. Yeah. And um, to get a solid gold chalice is like, I don't know, I think I was seeing them at like forty, fifty, sixty thousand dollars $60,000. I mean, it's outrageous. So, yeah, you, so you, needless to say, <laughs> I think we all use plated chalices, and they're very nice. They're wonderful. Um, but, but, yeah, so... So this statement right here, all King Solomon's drinking vessels, not just one, all of them were of gold. You know, that'll tell you something of, of how that wealth translates. And all the vessels of the house of the forest of Lebanon were of pure gold. Whew, all the vessels. None were of silver. Silver was not considered as anything in the days of Solomon. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't that incredible? For the king had a fleet of ships of Tarshish at sea with the fleet of Hiram. Once every th three years, the fleet of ships of Tarshish used to come bringing gold, silver, ivory, apes, and peacocks. Now, this too, I was very curious. Like, what do you do with apes? Yeah, I don't know. What do you? 
peacocks, I guess they just walk around. I'm guessing, I'm guessing, as much as this might offend our sensibilities, I'm guessing entertainment purposes. You know, kind of a marvel and a spectacle and a, and a beauty. Just, um, yeah, well, I don't think, yeah, I don't, yeah, like a, yeah, kind of a, yeah. Yeah, I mean, to the best of my knowledge, apes aren't native to that part of the world. And so these are, you know, exotic creatures were brought in. The marvels of the world were brought in. But that's, that too, I'd love to know if there's... Um, peacocks are kind of obvious because of their beauty. I just don't, don't quite know. Nor do, I mean, apes can also be a broad term, obviously, for different kinds of... So I don't know. I'd have to look into that. Anyway, verse 23, Thus King Solomon excelled all the kings of the earth in riches and in wisdom. And the whole earth sought the presence of Solomon to hear his wisdom, which God has put, had put into his mind. I mean, what an incredible thing. Just an anomaly. I'm just, I'm just thinking in the back of my mind that we don't have anyone remotely like this in all the world. <laughs> I mean, I guess people will fly to India to try to seek out gurus or something. Um, but, but yeah, that's, uh, we have nothing like this where the whole world and all the wisest and all the, all the leaders go to, to this one man recognizing his wisdom. And what a way this points to Jesus. And to those of us who, though we may be foolish by worldly standards, are nonetheless wise in the way of salvation. To receive his wisdom, the true king, our Lord Jesus. And then to receive that wisdom for all eternity. What a blessing. We glimpse that here. Verse 25, every one of them brought his present, articles of silver and gold, garments, Myrrh, spices, horses, and mules, so much year by year. And that seems to indicate, um, you know, tribute in some respects. That's probably the case. Verse 26, and Solomon gathered together chariots and horsemen. So here's military prowess. He had 1,400 chariots and 12,000 horsemen, whom he stationed in the chariot cities and with the king in Jerusalem. Chariot cities probably being strategic locations to house your military. I mean, that's the ancient world equivalent of your tanks. And the king made silver as common in Jerusalem as stone. And he made cedar as plentiful as the sycamore of the Shephelah, which apparently was very plentiful. And Solomon's import of horses was from Egypt and Q. And the king's traders received them from Q at a price. A chariot could be imported from Egypt for 600 shekels of silver and a horse for 150. We just heard that silver was nothing. So, And so through the king's traders they were exported to all the kings of the Hittites and the kings of Syria. 
Yeah, and I don't know. <laughs> the study note points out. I mean, this kind of goes with our theme and motif that there are these subtle hints that everything is not is not right. And the study note on chapter 10, verse 29, points this out that that Solomon's delight was in the strength of the horse, his military prowess. This violated divine prescription that the king was not to have, quote-unquote, many horses. Deuteronomy 17, 16. So, yeah, I mean, that would indicate just as you're reading through this, you're getting hints that all is not right, you know, that... Um, Okay, well, that, t that takes us into chapter 11, unless you have any thoughts. Yes? Yeah, that's a great question. Is, it, is the great wealth to show that God blessed him or that he's misusing God's blessing? Um, I actually, just as you put it, I would say both. Yeah, I mean, I, the, blessing, the blessing seems to come by God, I, not just outright, but as an extension of his wisdom. But I think things do get muddy there based on what's coming next because of the many foreign women and because those were contractual marriages and political marriages. That's probably what largely brought a lot of the wealth in. So while it is safe to say that God blessed him with wealth, it's probably also safe to say that his sinful allegiances brought in wealth, that that wealth has a corrupting influence on him. And um, yeah, and it's, you know, the... It's not money itself that's the problem, but the love of money. It's not the wealth itself, but the love of wealth. And even in a man like Solomon, you get the sense that he wasn't like, okay, that, okay that's enough. We've got enough. <laughs> but like all wealthy people, he was like, okay, let's increase the profits again. You know, let's make this year better than last. There's never enough. There's never enough. I, I mean, we, of course, we experience that in some ways in our own lives, no matter who we are. It's just never enough. But, uh, but there's something about becoming wealthy or rich relative to um, the standards of your day, let's say, and you reach this threshold, and instead of like sort of being satisfied or realizing I've got enough for me in my life or I've got enough for me and my family and extended family for life, there's just this impulse, instead of like slowing down, there's this impulse of like more, more, more. And then you end up with Google and Apple and whatever else we have today. Yeah, um, one second. Uh, you were trying to get an edge. Yeah. I noticed what it says here. It says, and the king made silver very common in, in Jerusalem, the agriculture. Yeah, well, I, I mean, my sense, my sense on that is that the whole nation is blessed. But that's being centered on Jerusalem and the king. So I, I don't know that I'd necessarily read into some sort of, you know, divide there. Um, even though we do know a divide is coming, I'm not, I'm not sure that that's the intent of the narrative here. Yeah. Okay, um, did I? S yes, please. I'm, gonna I'm just going to restate it for those online who probably couldn't hear you. But um, you dug into Deuteronomy 17. And there you found not only a prohibition against many horses, but the rationale, because that'll take you back to Egypt from where you came and into, those, into that influence of paganism and slavery. And then, and then the other things were many wives, yeah, which that's coming. 
And what was the what was the third and final? Excessive silver and gold, of course, and and it's so excessive that silver is nothing, you know. <laughs> so, yeah, that's uh, that's real interesting, then, and real interesting to think. I mean, because again, we really can't overstate how much the Torah, of which Deuteronomy is a part, dominates the thinking of God's people, and particularly the biblical authors. And so, it may very well be the case that this entire narrative is shaped and formed to show the accesses, and then with chapter 11 is, and here's where it le inevitably leads, predictably leads. Yeah, so I thank you for that. I had no idea, I mean, the study note didn't indicate how thoroughgoing that treatment was, so I really appreciate that fact. In fact, I'm going to try to make myself a note so that, you know, 42 years from now when I have taught through the whole Bible. <laughs> get back to this section. Um, I'll remember to look into that. So bear with me one second. Deuteronomy 17. Okay, okay. Um, chapter 11. Now King Solomon loved many foreign women along with the daughter of Pharaoh. Now, we've already been introduced to her, of course. But this loving of many foreign women, of course, is forbidden by the covenant. And, I mean, we can approach this from many different angles. It's, or at least from several. I mean, of course, it's not some sort of racist prohibition, okay? Um, but it's a prohibition against marrying a foreigner in the first place because there's going to be this melding of families and this melding of family religions. And that wasn't offensive to the pagan peoples. By and large, it wasn't offensive to the pagan peoples around Israel. Um, the more gods, the merrier. You know, let's worship Baal and Yahweh together at the same picnic. Why not? Um, but but what, is, what is controversial about God's people always has been, is today, always will be, is the exclusivity. We worship Yahweh alone. We worship Father, Son, Holy Spirit alone. We won't, we won't bow the knee to your God and our God, but to our God alone. So it's the exclusivity that is scandalous. Um, and then we can also approach it from the angle of uh, polygamy is certainly not God's choice. You can see, you can see, I think, strangely, you've got to articulate this the right way, and maybe I'll fail at that, who knows. But uh, there is a kind of type, and what, what Solomon means for evil is nonetheless used for good in the sense that we see Solomon having 700 plus 300, it's going to be 1,000, like this, this fullness of a, of a spouse, right? And we can see how that's evil, okay? But you can also see how this reflects Christ, who's whose bride is a thousandfold in the church, and yet, truly speaking, one. And I'm not accusing our Lord of polygamy, but you can see, you know, that's what I mean, you've got to articulate this very, very carefully. But you can see this in a kind of type, anti-type, antithesis sort of way. I mean, maybe you'd, maybe you'd prefer to articulate Solomon had a thousand and Jesus had one. Fine, fine. It's all the same, it's all the same point. Um... But Solomon loved many foreign women, along with the daughter of the Pharaoh. And then here's the description of these foreign women. Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, and Hittite women. These are all the pagan people all around. So this is, I mean, this is bad news. 
from the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the people of Israel, You shall not enter into marriage with them, neither shall they with you, for surely they will turn away your heart after their gods. And this is, um, this is the great power of evil. To turn, I mean, good is that's so strange. There's such a paradox here. Because good is more powerful than evil in and of itself. And yet, because of our weak and fallen state, good is sometimes so fragile. And the good is easily led astray. This is part of the rationale of why, of why Paul uh, says that, that Christians should not marry unbelievers. Because what fellowship does light have with darkness? And the implication is that it's not, like, it's not like you're more likely to convert your unbelieving spouse. It's more likely that your unbelieving spouse is going to convert you. Because you've got your unbelieving spouse, like if you sort of like map this into an equation, you've got the whole of your unbelieving spouse who's against you going to church, being a Christian, and then you've got your flesh as well against you. And that's just too overwhelming for the, the one-fourth or the minority or whatever, you, however you want to articulate it, that is the new man within you. It's just too overwhelming. And so how much more if you've got a thousand other women that you've united yourself to and become flesh of their flesh and bone of their bone. And then um, they're all leading you in concert with your own fallen nature into pagan worship. I mean, it's a recipe for disaster. And that's, that's what happens. So, um, Surely they will turn away your heart after their gods. Solomon clung to these in love. And here you can see a rather twisted usage of the word love, isn't it? Yeah, right, right. It's, it's a, not only an adulterous, but an idolatrous kind of love here. He values these women more than he values God's, God's word, God's prohibition, God himself. All right, he had 700 wives, which I, I don't mean any offense to wives, but I think that's a couple too many. It's a couple more than any man could handle, I think. Um, princesses, okay, so wives and uh, princesses and 300 concubines. I don't you know, what's the difference between a wife and a princess? I don't know. Yeah. I didn't really dig into that all that much. It may just be wives, even princesses. I don't know. I mean, they're certainly not all queens. All right, and then concubines, too, is weird. And I tried to dig around a little bit on that, too, but then I got flagged for... No, I'm just joking. <laughs> but... Um, you know, we articulated, we <laughs> my poor wife, ah, he's been looking up concubines again. I mean, concubines is a weird thing. We, um, there, there is, and maybe it's even in the study note, there is a place you can kind of go back into the study Bible. We looked at this probably back in Genesis where, where it's first mentioned, you know, what a concubine is. But generally speaking, a, a concubine is given by a wife uh, usually for the purposes of producing more offspring. So it's, um, it's that, that differentiates it from a prostitute, you see. Yeah, 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 like maybe a surrogate, right. And yeah, that rings a bell, I think so. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, look, it's not, it's not in accord with God's order. Like, let's put it that way. Um, but it's not, it's not identical to prostitution. It's, um, in fact, I think it's a far cry from prostitution. Yeah, but it would fall, it would really kind of fall under polygamy, I think.
So anyway, be that as it may, not to, not to wallow here in poor Solomon's sins, but 700 wives, 300 concubines, and his wives turned away his heart. Yeah. Maybe it's me, but I have another question. Is, in De- is it Deuteronomy where you're supposed to be teaching your kids when they sit down, lie up, getting up and doing, you're supposed to be training them. Sure. So if you have, let's just round out a thousand people mm-hmm. and they all just have one. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe I'm mistaken, but you're going to be teaching full time? Maybe he'd have a thousand kids and he's yeah. responsible to train them in the way they yeah, should go. So it's I not going to work, is just, it? Just, just one of many things I'm thinking you're breaking so many things. I mean, how can you, how can you train? You'd have to be a full time teacher. Yeah, I don't, you know, I'd never asked that question. There's so many questions of the text you know, that you could ask. I've never thought to ask that question. It's, it's a good question. But, you know, I, I'm going to be paying attention as we go through the pages here to see um, if it indicates how many offspring Solomon did have. I tend to think he didn't have that many. Um, I mean, not like a thousand or something. Uh, it, maybe he did, and the Bible doesn't say. That's another question. So, I, so we'll, have to, we'll have to read that with a, with a little asterisk there. Um, but I also, I, also tend to think, I also tend to think that it's different than how we think as American males. I, doubt, I, so I think that Solomon was very busy, was very industrious, and was busy building a kingdom and probably wasn't doing what the American male mind thinks he was doing. Um, I, think he was, I think he tended to have other interests. So let's, um, I mean, who knows? Who knows? Let's keep those things in mind as we walk through the narrative and see. Um, yeah, anyway, this is a tragic, uh, I mean, it's kind of, I don't know. You, it, it's easy to poke fun at this <laughs> section, of course, but it's um, just because it's so exorbitant. I mean, it's kind of like the, a, a human heart. I mean, that's an interesting way to look at this text, too. A human heart, no matter how noble it is, and no matter how good its intentions are, building the temple of the Lord, praying the prayers he prayed, wise beyond belief, the most noble human heart you could imagine, if given free reign to do whatever it wants, does this. And that's a pretty solid indictment of, of original sin. You know, no matter how, how pious and wise and holy you are, if given the opportunity to have free reign, you would take it. That's probably. And then, and then that would reveal to us too that so much of our piety that we take as piety it's just piety by constraint, <laughs> right? We're cons- it's not that we're choosing it, it's that we've got no choice in it. <laughs> oh, that's brutal. It's brutal to think that way. Yes? I did read that um, King Solomon and Queen Bathsheba didn't have a, a son together. I didn't, no, I didn't read anything about them having a son together. Oh my, oh that's my. That's what I read. That's what, wow. the, that's what the Ark of the Covenant ended up in Ethiopia because Ethiopia, because the son, okay. the son of King Sheba and Solomon's affair took it over there. How interesting. How interesting. I don't know. I've never read anything like that in a biblical text. <laughs> I mean, I.
Yeah. How strange. I don't know either. I don't know either. Yeah. Yeah, that is interesting. Well, you know, and it's, yeah, it's peculiar. I mean, the text indi- it doesn't indicate anything, that anything romantic or otherwise happened uh, between the Queen of Sheba and Solomon. So I, I would say that, I mean, that we ought to just respect that silence and, and assume not. Um, again, there's a, I think there's maybe a maybe a mirror through, through which we can see the over-sexualized nature of our culture and our media where... Somebody made up a romantic Yeah, where, where every, everywhere there's... It's <laughs> not here. It's passage Yeah, I mean, yeah, I'd, why... I mean, if they wanted to be married, obviously they could be, you would think, unless she was already married or something, but I don't know. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. If there's an affair there, the text doesn't indicate anything about it here. Of course, there is other biblical data, you know, that, that we could maybe look, look for in Chronicles or something like that. But I, again, I don't know. That would be news to me. Okay, so, well, boy, we're, we're basically out of time. Let me, let me just see if I can. Um, oh, yeah. Yeah, this sad thing. So we'll just, what we're going to do next week is we'll just pick up here, um, you know, verse 4 of chapter 11. I'll do my best to remember that that's where we are. And, and it's going to get worse because uh, obviously they turned away his heart, which means they turned away his heart from Yahweh to these false gods. And then we're going we're gonna to learn just a little bit about who these false gods were and are, and it's not good. And it doesn't just affect Solomon. Obviously, it affects countless people. Pro- I mean, It affects millions of people in Israel, what he's done. All right, the Lord be with you.